The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Peace be with you. These are the first words that the resurrected Christ speaks to the apostles in John's gospel. Jesus appears in a locked room where the disciples are hiding away from the Jewish leaders and tells them, peace be with you. Why does Jesus say this of all things? Why this? after his betrayal by Judas, the rest of the disciples, being accused by Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion and the empty tomb, why this statement? The simple answer is that Jesus is announcing to his disciples that through the cross and resurrection, he has become peace itself. With God, there is no separation between who he is and what he does. What God does is inseparable. Therefore, Christ is peace and his actions are peaceful. He cannot act contrary to who he is. And in this passage, it's clear. Christ announces himself as peace. And he reveals that what he did on the cross was God's way of bringing peace to the world. So if this is how peace is brought and presented, how might we compare this to how we typically think of peace? The way that we typically think about it is kind of in a negative sense. We think about it as the absence of conflict and chaos. And there's something to this negative understanding of peace. As the cross was a sort of self-emptying of God, as the poem in Philippians 2 hints at. 
the purely negative conception and understanding of peace does fall short to a degree. But it's not wholly wrong, as Christ did empty himself of his life, and there is no greater negation than God, the giver and sustainer of life, emptying himself of his very being and what he is and negating death itself. The Easter event reveals to us something profound, beautiful, and mysterious about the peace that Christ brings. What makes this difficult is that peace is mysterious and it is still the core of our faith and our confession of what we are as Christians, as those who Christ has made peace with. He has done this through the cross and resurrection and has cleansed us and brought us into his rest. This is a rest in which we accept the gift of salvation that makes us powerless and we lose control of our perceived control of the relationship between God and the outcome of history. The resurrection wakes us up to the reality that God governs the outcome of his creation. And while humanity is determined to destroy itself, God will not allow it. Death can't win. Now this passage is not typically known for the words that Christ speaks to his disciples. Most of us know this as Thomas's doubt. Thomas, who missed the first encounter with Christ, is known as the great skeptic. His words, when he hears from his friends, who he spent the better part of three years under, as a disciple of Christ, learning from him, seeing his miracles, um, and hearing his prophetic words and teaching, first says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe. John brilliantly contrasts these two stories to illuminate the stark difference between the faith of the community of disciples, which encounters Christ and his peace, and the skepticism of the individual Thomas and his pursuit of truth. Within our day, the approach of Thomas is typically celebrated. The cold, calculated, and rational skepticism is um, sorry, um, the cold calculated is the decision or the basing, um, people base their lives on what they can determine by the clear-cut arguments provided by the scientific method or rational philosophical thinking. To be clear, this kind of thinking is not to be dispatched with or to be mocked. Philosophical and scientific thought is greatly important and fruitful. And the discoveries and clarity they bring should be celebrated. But the faith of the church is not brought about by philosophical thought or scientific discovery. As Pope Benedict puts in his introduction to Christianity, faith, in fact, comes from hearing, not like philosophy, from reflection. Its nature lies in the fact that it is not thinking out of something that can be thought out that at the end of the process is then at my disposal as a result of my thought. On the contrary, it is the characteristic of faith that comes from hearing that is the reception of something that I have not thought out, so that the last analysis, thinking in the context of faith, is always a thinking over of something previously heard and received. Benedict goes on to say that faith comes to humanity from outside. It is God, who is not of this world, that came into the world and took on flesh to disrupt the world, the nature of faith, then, is disruptive. 
and outside of ourselves. The incarnation was not something that could have been a rational conclusion to a reflection upon the world. As the incarnation's very essence is mystery, and that must be revealed by God and God alone. In other words, the incarnation and the Paschal event is something that is simply given to us. It addresses us and we respond with faith. But this is where the clear and easy distinction of faith and reason or faith and scientific and philosophical skepticism are blurred. Because to both the disciples and to Thomas, Christ first says, peace be with you, but then he does show his pierced hands and side. There is something physical to be seen and to believe in. But this does not mean that the faith of Thomas and the disciples is reducible to the physical evidence. And on the flip side, it doesn't mean that faith is reducible to the spiritual world. The complete separation of the physical and spiritual simply doesn't hold up. Instead, what this does mean is that Christian faith is one that is based upon the power of the resurrection to transform the physical world. Our faith is not a disembodied one. This is a mistake of the early heresies of the Gnostics and Manichaeans. Instead, our faith is founded upon the bodily resurrection of our pierced Lord, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we participate within the death and the resurrection of Christ by the sacraments. There are instances of the physical world, water, uh, wine, and bread being transformed by the power of the resurrection to reveal the God of the gospel to us. This faith, like we have discussed, cannot be fundamentally philosophical or purely hopeful belief in the spiritual. And one of the reasons for this is that both of these end up being the individual's journey for truth. But as Pope Benedict rightly claims, the intrinsic nature of the Christian faith is a communal one. Faith is not something that can be done by or brought about by an individual, but faith is brought about when the word reveals itself and creates a community that he has made peace with. And this community of peace is called the church and the friends of Christ. As those who have been made friends of Christ, we are bound together by our faith. And one of the things that we do together is confess our faith through the Apostles' Creed, which we will do together after this. Typically, most believe that Christian faith is summed up by the creeds, and that is certainly part of the tension of them, as they are the authoritative speech of the historical church. But to just say that the creeds are the distillation of the faith is partially to miss the point. Sometimes we take the theological deposit and remove it from its liturgical place within the church. We remove it from the sacraments and what we did last week when we participated in the baptism of six children. And sometimes we abstract it from the fact that we pass the peace with one another later. There's a reason that these are all hanging together. It's not a coincidence or a happy accident that we, we confess the creed and then pass the peace. This is a deliberate recognition that they're mutually dependent upon one another. And that one who confesses the creed and claims to have faith, but does not pass the peace to our neighbor has failed to truly have faith. As faith is predicated on Christ's statement, peace be with you. 
and following that statement with, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed, breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. Our faith cannot be confined or reduced to holding to these statements of the creeds or to simply saying, I believe in Jesus. Our faith instead demands that we share the peace of Christ with our neighbors, as this is a true act of faith. We confess the creeds each week and pass the peace because it is something that we must do over and over again to become people of peace. Each week we gather together and hear the message of Easter, confess the creed, pass the peace, and receive the Eucharist because Christ has made peace with us and we have become his peace in the world. We do this each week so that when our worlds are crumbling and our neighbor or our neighbors is, we respond as we do here at All Souls by confessing the true faith through the Apostles' Creed and passing the peace to our neighbors and laying down our life as Christ did. The laying down of one's life has been, mark, has been a mark of the church since its birth. Martyrs have become clear moments of the odd Christian faith that is brought about in history. We look at them now and recognize their faithful actions, and we honor men and women who had clarity to be faithful in their moment, which ultimately led to their death. Two stories that illuminate these moments of faithfulness are the story of a group of faithful North Africans in the second century and the Jesuit St. Aloysius Gonzaga. In 180 AD, a group of peasants in North Africa were being examined at Carthage by the proconsul Saturinus. These peasants were on trial for not going through the motions of civic uh, piety by praying for the emperor and for recognizing his genius on the terms that Rome demanded. And what we have recorded of this event, Saturinus patiently and seemingly charitably attempted to explain to the 12 peasants what was at stake if they didn't hold to what Rome wanted them to. Um, and he assumed that he could convince them if he just explained it well enough because they didn't have much of an intellect or education. But the peasant leader, Spiritus, simply refused Saturinus. And he said, we are Christians. And their loyalty was with Christ and not with Rome. While they pray for the emperor, pay their taxes, and were good citizens, they were not going to do it on Rome's terms, but on Christ's. Once this was made clear, Saturinus read aloud, Spiritus, Nartosus, Sitinus, Donata, Westia, Secunda, and the rest have admitted that they live according to the usage of the Christians. Since they have obstinately persevered, even when offered the chance of returning to Roman custom, the sentence is that they should be beheaded. These martyrs of the early church clearly confessed their faith and recognized where the power of the world lied. They were prepared for the consequences of their faith, which meant peacefully accepting the same fate as their Lord. Knowing that no great outcome would come of it, it was not done in the name of revolution or controlling history or a material reward, but simply out of the recognition that their life was Christ's. And this is what it meant for them to be faithful to the one who had made peace with them. 
The confession of faith is quite clear in this story of martyrdom, but the story of St. Aloysius Gonzaga is not one of the oppressive state forcing him to submit to its power. Instead, Aloysius, a boy who joined the Jesuit order during his, the early stages of the Jesuit life, in, 18, or in 1585, a terrible plague hit Rome, and a Jesuits, the Jesuits built a hospital to care for the sick. And while Aloysius knew that if he went in and cared for the sick, he would likely die. But he chose to care for them and to prepare them for the sacraments. And inevitably, at the age of 23, he died. This may seem like a bit of an odd example, especially in relation to John 20 and the doubt of Thomas. But I think that these two stories show a group of North Africans and a young Italian boy understanding exactly what it means to have faith in the peace of Christ. The North Africans knew that the moment demanded their faithfulness in the clear confession of belonging to Christ and knowing that they could not act as other than Christians. And a young Aloysius knew that it was a moment where many were suffering in Rome and that for him to be faithful was to care for the dying knowing that he himself would likely perish. While these stories may seem like beautiful uh, moments of faith to us now, in the moment all that happened was a group of peasants were beheaded and a young Italian boy died in the medieval period. History wasn't changed, it wasn't altered, revolution was not brought about, but they were faithful. What the lives of these saints point us to is the task of the friends of Christ filled by the Spirit to go out into the world and make peace. It is not our task to make history go the right way. We can't determine its outcome, and we aren't called to do that. Our baptisms did not include a confession that would bring about revolution, change, and make history turn out right. But what, we, what it did include was a true confession of faith in Christ, in the resurrected Lord, and a vow to be faithful to him. It is the duty of the church in every era to learn how to be faithful to its confession and to be people that pass Christ's peace. And now it is our duty as Christians and the church in Portland to contemplate what it might mean to be faithful so that when the moment presents itself, we may act like the North African peasants did and like St. Aloysius did in Rome, who sacrificed his life to care for the dying. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.